0: Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Let's talk a little bit about Socrates. You wrote a book um, called Why Socrates Died, Dispelling the Myths. And I think that came out around 2009. Um, Sounds right. So I guess I have to admit, I I only know the layman's version of Socrates. And uh, I know that he when you look at lists online of the the most famous figures of ancient Greece, he's usually number two or three. Um, In some cases, he's number one. Um, So I guess can you kind of give us um, what you know, just the basics about what we do know about Socrates and kind of who he was before yeah. we, how he died and, and all that.
1: Yeah, well, uh again, I'm, you know, a scholar. I'm kind of skeptical. I'm on the side of the skeptics about this. Um, but you're right, he's, he's you know, one of the few ancient Greeks who is a household name. I mean, everybody's heard of Socrates. Um, right. He lived uh, throughout much of the uh, fifth century. He was born uh, about 470 and he died in 399. Um, By the time he died, he had, he was surrounded by a group of very loyal followers and uh, a number of them (coughs) um, wrote uh not about him but wrote philosophical works featuring him in conversation with other people nearly all of those works are are lost but we have plato's socratic uh you know plato's philosophical works featuring socrates as i say in conversation with others and we also have those of xenophon these were written by two loyal followers of his after his death for a contemporary witness, Socrates was famous enough and or you could also say Athens was a small enough town uh, for him to be famous enough for him to feature. Um, for him to be satirized in the comic plays and one of those comic plays in which, um, which Socrates features largely was produced in 423, in other words, during his lifetime. It was written by Aristophanes, the greatest of the Athenian uh, comic poets, and the one whose lot of whose uh, you know several of whose uh, plays survive. And it was called the Clouds, and it featured Socrates uh, running a kind of a school um, at which he taught. An amalgamation of an amalgam of the new scientific learning that we associate with the people who are generally called the pre-Socratics because their work in its nature and in its time mostly preceded Socrates so they're the pre-Socratics they were they were proto-scientists. Socrates in the clouds babbles you know comic versions of of scientific theories but he also um um, uh, um, employs Sophistic argumentation because the other main intellectual trend and in trend in the fifth century, along with pre-Socratic science, was new rhetoric and new forms of argumentation um, being promoted by a group of people who we collectively call the sophists. The single name actually disguises a lot of difference between them. So Socrates and Aristophanes's play was simply simply became a figurehead for the new learning. And we can't really tell anything about Socrates himself from it. Okay, yes, he would have had to, some of some of his personal habits perhaps might have been, you know, accurately portrayed by Aristophanes, but we really can't tell anything about what work he was doing from Aristophanes, who was our only contemporary witness. So right, then we turn to Plato and Xenophon, whose, whose works survive. Uh, Do they give us an accurate picture of Socrates? Um, Well, again, there must be, you know, it must, there must be a basis on Socrates. Um, They weren't entirely making it all up, but again, probably the basis is more the personal things rather than the things they actually have him say. So the fact that, you know, what he looked like, that he had a snub nose and bulgy eyes and was ugly and and things like that. But um, as Alcibiades says in Plato's Symposium, hid majestic glories within this ugly exterior. Um, But his, you see, Plato and Xenophon contradict each other. They present completely different portraits of Socrates. I mean, so different that they really can't both be right. Anyway, to, to, to leap ahead, I'm a skeptic, because I believe both Plato and Xenophon were writing completely fictional accounts of Socratic conversations. They Xenophon pretends, Xenophon prefaces quite a lot of his stuff by saying, um, I once heard Socrates talking with Pericles, and this is what he said, this is rubbish. Xenophon was only like a child. Xenophon, you know, wasn't even alive when Pericles was alive, you know, so he can't have been present at a conversation between Socrates and Pericles. So he's definitely making it all up. And by the same token Plato is as well. That was was the name of the game. As I said, there were a lot of Socrates' followers who started writing books with Socrates in conversation after his death. That was the name of the game, to present Socrates what he might have said and done had he been in conversation with so and so on such and such an occasion but they weren't actually recording real socratic conversations they were recording what he might have done so there you've got the basis on socrates that you know he's still the foundation of it but i think everything else is made up so i don't think i don't think we can ever actually know for sure what um what Socrates exactly was was doing what he was teaching what his fantastic attraction was to all these you know very smart young men a few older men as well uh I just I just don't think we can know but it doesn't really matter because there's a sense I think in which people like Socrates and Jesus you know men of real destiny like that they are what they become right they, they 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 can't be what they actually were because they are what you know Jesus is what St. Paul made of him. And Socrates is what Xenophon and Plato made of him, I think.
0: Right. The Socrates of Plato is the Socrates or or, or Xenophon is is the Socrates that everyone thinks of. It's
1: yeah actually. In fact, Socrates. it's in fact it's largely the Socrates of Plato. Xenophon right. Socrates was held until the uh late 19th century to be the more accurate portrait uh, but now plato occupies that position and xenophon is considered to be uh inferior in intellect and therefore not a true judge of socrates's character or philosophy but i disagree with that as well I, I think more highly of xenophon than most people do
0: well you mentioned that there's a, they that xenophon and socrates and uh, plato present almost um, a, Two different versions of Socrates that are almost irreconcilable historically. What can you just elaborate that on a, on that a little bit? When I think of Socrates, and maybe some listeners, they think of a guy walking around Athens in a robe, asking questions of everyone, and sort of challenging the status quo. And you know, um, there's I, I think some famous quotes where he alluded to he was. The wisest because he understood he didn't know the answers to that stuff to that effect i'm i'm very new to socrates so this is um you know. no, no
1: no that's 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 uh perfectly accurate but it's only plato's picture I that see. is the socrates we get in plato's dialogues yes he's always he's always quizzing people he's always puncturing holes in them they claim to know know something and he points out that they don't he thinks that if you know something you should be able to define it so he asks them you know he asks military men to define courage because he expects them to know what it is. And they claim to know what it is, but they fail to define courage because he can always produce counterexamples. So they haven't come up with a universal definition of courage. That, that is, that's Plato's Socrates, but Xenophon's Socrates is very different. You should read the memorabilia. It's uh and, and his other Socratic works are all bundled together in a single volume translated by moi. Um, <laughs> so, um, Xenophon Socrates is—he's not as sharp a character. He gives advice to people rather than rather than quizzing them, rather than interrogating them and making them feel uncomfortable. Well, he could make them feel uncomfortable, but he's he's given them advice. Um, it's 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 wartime, Socrates, and I've lost all my money. What should I do? And he gives them advice. I want to enter public life. I want to be a, an Athenian politician, Socrates. What should I do? And he gives them advice. You know, the, on one or two occasions, Xenophon shows him doing a Plato-like interrogation of 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 uh, of somebody. But that's probably, in fact, almost certainly in, in that's in imitation of Plato. That is Xenophon imitating Plato. Um, so, as I say, they were both just, uh, yeah. What Socrates might have said had he been talking with so and so in such and such a situation, but they were doing it in different ways. But Plato, you see, Plato's job, not Xenophon's, this is this is my idea of okay. I think the Xenophon's mission was to try to tweak conventional morality in order to give it a Socratic foundation, a more thoughtful. Um, realistic and and long-lasting foundation. Plato's mission was quite different, and was very bold, and I think it was actually a shared mission between him and uh, a lot of the other Socratics, a lot of the other followers of Socrates, whose work we unfortunately don't have. We have a few fragments of one or two of them, Ischines and Antisthenes, but you know, for instance, Fido of Elis, was said to have written something like 15 Socratic works, and we don't have a single one of them, just the titles, you know, things like that. But so I think Plato's mission was shared by others. But what he was trying to do was actually to, well, to put it at its boldest, to invent what we now call philosophy. He was trying to demarcate philosophy off from all other claims to education and knowledge in the past it had been particularly poets you know like like homer and and uh, others who had who had been figures of authority who people had learned from and that was still the case in in ordinary school education uh you know homer was very central to the school curriculum so or or it was um or it was uh politicians who had a claim to knowledge or it was poets politicians or it was uh Orators who had a claim to knowledge. And so what you get what you get Plato doing in a a number of dialogues, those that are often considered early, although I have my doubts about that too, um, is quizzing one of these experts, showing that they don't really know what they what they claim to know, and thereby implicitly leaving the field to Socratic type of philosophy as the only true education. Plato, remember, set up a kind of proto, not really universities, more like a research college called the Academy. That was in, in rivalry to particularly a man called Isocrates, who had set up his own school of what he called philosophy. Uh, uh, and if, if Isocrates had won... As it were, the rivalrous battle. I'm not sure they were that, you know, battling to that extent. But if, but if he had come out on top, then what we call philosophy might be what he called philosophy, which was a kind of a um, skill at speaking and manipulating public affairs. But no, he didn't win that particular battle. Plato did, and so what we call philosophy is still Socratic in many ways, because Socrates. Okay, the reason we call the pre-Socratics the pre-Socratics is because uh they were trying to understand the world as a whole what socrates did and what the sophists also had done before him to a certain extent was make philosophy reflective turn it onto the individual make philosophy think about itself not just say you know how does one become a good person which was what isocrates would have been interested in doing but what is it to be a good person what is good what is goodness right and philosophy retains that it's still inquisitive it's still explorative philosophers aren't interested in in you know they want to try to suggest answers but once they have found an answer they're moving on to the next unexplored area that, that's what philosophy is and that's mm-hmm. and so plato won and that's why you know and, and as i say i think all the socratics were involved in that enterprise but that's roughly what i think what they were doing but it's fiction i'm, pre- I'm really really pretty sure that it's that it's 90% fiction that we can't really tell which bits of what we're reading are true to Socrates and which aren't.
0: Interesting. Is it to say that sort of one of the main things we know is that he clearly had an he clearly had made a had built a reputation for himself and made an influence on the people around him at the time. Um, is that a fair?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, otherwise, for instance, he wouldn't have featured in, in Aristophanes' comedy. Right. And actually, in the same year that um that Aristophanes put on the clouds, uh, another uh, comic poet called Amepsias uh, also put on a comedy featuring Socrates, but that one's lost, so we don't know how big Socrates was in it, but he's big in the clouds. No, I mean and, and in fact he was already famous by the um by the uh late 430s, because we get a first Mention of him in a comic, a fragment of a comic play, around about four thirty-three, I think, like that. So yeah, he was he was the famous, you know, sophist, wise man of of Athens. Yeah,
0: it does remind <laughs> me history, a little bit of Jesus, which I'm not an expert in, but I've looked into the scholarship a little bit, and you know, it's elusive to actually pin down, you know, uh, who he really was or what he might have been like, but it does seem you know it seems pretty clear that he made it he made a very strong impression around the people in his circle at least and in the end yeah yeah
1: <laughs> certainly
0: try. yeah that would be
1: yeah. no but i'm going back to your question i mean that's also the reason why um i'm segueing now into socrates's death which he wanted to talk about that's also the reason why he was put to death um because he was you know, an important enough person to to be taken as some kind of figurehead. And, okay, I need to fill in a bit of historical background. So at the end of the Peloponnesian War, which was fought between Sparta and their allies and Athens and uh, its allies, and it went on with some breaks from 431 to 404, and it was effectively a world war, a sort of pan-Mediterranean world war very horrible, all the usual atrocities and you know. Uh, Athens lost, Sparta defeated it. So in 404 um, the Athenian democracy, famous Athenian democracy, was dissolved by the Spartans and they imposed a, uh, a narrow tyranny of 30 men, a narrow oligarchy, I should say, of 30 men. I said tyranny because they very shortly became known as the 30 tyrants. And they were brutal. They were really unpleasant people. Athens was bankrupt because of the war. And so the way they went about raising money was by killing rich people and confiscating their land. They were the first people in Europe to make one afraid of the dawn knock at your door. And that's literal truth. There's a wonderful speech um, by uh, a speechwriter called Lysias um, describing exactly that. His house was was raided by you know the thugs of the Thirty, and his brother was killed, and Lysias escaped. Um, so they they are a real stain on Athenian history. But a number of them and a number of people who have been in, involved in 415, sorry, four, yeah, 415 and then again in 411 in attempted oligarchic coups, the one in 411 worked. So a number of the oligarchs, the, the primary di- political division in ancient Athens was between oligarchs who wanted Athens to be ruled by a few members of the wealth elite and Democrats who wanted the people to rule, all right? So oligarchs, Democrats. A lot of the oligarchs that we know of in Athens were members of the Socratic Circle. Hmm. Um, it gets even closer than that. Two of the most famous of them, Critias and Carmides, were closely related to Plato. Anyway, that's another story. So um, uh, so actually the, the regime of the 30 didn't last that long. It lasted about, about a year before democracy was bloodily restored not with too much bloodshed but yeah some um but so i think before the 30 socrates could have been dismissed as a harmless eccentric you know this funny old man this ugly old man who goes around quizzing people or whatever it was that he did and is you know enthusiastically followed by some of our young men but after the 30 because of his links with the 30 then I think he became an unacceptable uh, stain on the restored democracy, ah. um, and I think that therefore there was he was he was um, arraigned on the charge of irreligion and corrupting the youth with his irreligious ways. But I think the the subtext was political from start to finish, and in in all honestly. Socrates' relations with the 30 were rather ambiguous. One of the things the 30 did, they were trying to set, turn Athens into a Spartan type of constitution. And one of the things they did for that was they restricted citizenship to 3,000 um, and disarmed everybody else and moved them out of Athens so that they lived in Piraeus or elsewhere. In other towns around Attica. The only people who were allowed to live in Athens were the chosen 3,000. Socrates was one of them. So, um, you know, given his links to the 30, it would have been very easy for. We don't have the prosecutor's speeches at his trial in 399, but I think it would have been very easy for them to make out that, that he was, you know, almost like the 30's advisor. Now, as it happens, he. Ended up not liking the 30. At one point, one of the 30's tactics was to try to involve as many people in their horrible doings so as to make them, you know, guilt brothers, as it were. Um, and at one point, they asked Socrates and a number of other people to go and arrest a prominent Democrat uh, who they wanted to put to death. And Socrates refused. The others didn't. The others went off and arrested Leone and he was duly executed. But Socrates didn't. He refused, and he went home. Not a very courageous stance. He didn't protest. He just went home. And it's, it seems that he might well have got into trouble about that. I mean, 30 might have wanted to execute him as well. But um, the regime of the 30 then fell shortly afterwards so socrates was perhaps saved by that but as i say his it would his he had links you know he was closer to the 30 than perhaps he should have been and uh and so i think that was why he was put on trial in three hundred ninety nine.
0: so he sort uh, of fell out of favor based on the larger political uh situation absolutely more light is a more likely explanation than sort of that he um had just offended some people or he was like, yeah i
1: don't i don't get that i don't buy that you do you do read that sometimes that his 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 um interrogation of people was so irritating that they put him to death for that i don't think that's a good enough reason that's, to put somebody to death so and weird. also the charges as i say were irreligion and uh corrupting the young both of them being political charges. When I say I think the subtext was political, it wasn't really much of a subtext to charge somebody with impiety was to charge them with not worshipping the gods of the city. And you had to worship the gods of the city because it was essential for the gods of the city to keep smiling on the city. So every citizen's duty was to you know, perform all the regular sacrifices and so on and so forth. And the second part of the charge was corrupting the young, uh, corrupting the young men. And that was a political charge because these were the wealthy young men who were going to be the political leaders of the next generation. So if Socrates was thought to be turning them into, you know, people who didn't worship the correct gods or no gods at all, even, then uh, then again, it was a political charge.
0: So... Moving into kind of the trial and execution portion of this, um, you know, the, I don't know much uh, about it. I, I, have, I have heard the accounts um, that perhaps Socrates had a, the opportunity to escape or to not face his death and yet he chose to do so anyways. And again, this is I believe this is coming from sources like Plato who you've already said are not a reliable historical account of his of his actions, so uh, can you just talk a little bit about kind of what the 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 popular conception of this is, and 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 what your belief is about
1: what? You know, I th- I think that's perfectly plausible. Yes, you're right. It's from Plato. <clears throat> it's from uh, uh, I think both the Crito and the Phaedo, two of Plato's dialogues. He set a whole bunch of dialogues written at different times of his life in the run up. To the trial, and then the trial itself, and then his last day, his last days in prison with the Crito and the Phaedo. Um, but it's perfectly plausible um, um, because it was a, a fairly common thing to do. If if you were if you were charged with a certainly with a non-capital crime, the Athenian democracy tended to impose very large. Fines on people, uh, really fines that they couldn't possibly pay, and uh, even after you've been found guilty by the court, it was certainly possible for you to just leave the city, to choose to go and live in another part of the Greek world around the Mediterranean. And Socrates, I'm sure, could have done that. I don't think I don't think Plato is wrong to have Crito say that. You could do that. Crito even says you should do that, think of your children. Right. Socrates in, in Plato's dialogue says no, you know, I've, I've chosen to live in Athens all my life, that means I've submitted to the laws of Athens, and I can't now go against those laws. Those laws have, have found me guilty, I can't go against them.
0: I want to uh, remind listeners that we are talking to Robin Waterfield Right now, about his book "Why Socrates Died," dispelling the myths. Um, so, okay, so that is that that particular aspect of it um, is perfectly plausible. Um, you know, what um, what other is there anything else that that kind of the popular, you know, conception at least of the history of Socrates? That, that today we're just getting wrong, or that we're glossing over.
1: No, I don't. I don't think anything. I mean, as long as as long as people are aware when they read Plato and Xenophon that they're most likely reading fiction, um, as I say, what Plato, what Socrates might have said and done, um, sure. then you know they're so enjoyable. So many of Plato's dialogues is just a joy, and his version of the defense speeches. Now you see, let's start with the fictionality there. I'm pretty sure that we have that we can say with some certainty that the book of Plato is called The Apology of Socrates, Apologia, which we transliterate as Apology, simply means defense. So these this is Plato's version of the defense speeches that Socrates gave at his trial, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. in the first place, Xenophon also wrote an Apology of Socrates, and the two are very different. They can't both be right. Yes, there are are points of contact. And it's quite likely that those points of contact might well be things that Socrates said at his trial. Let's say there are six or eight or 10 points of common contact between Plato's version of the speeches and Socrates' version and Xenophon's version of the speeches. But apart from those points of contact, they're very different. They can't both be right. Um, Secondly, Plato's apology consists of three speeches, a main defense speech, and then two shorter speeches, one uh, delivered after the verdict had been passed down, guilty, and one delivered after the penalty had been passed down, death. Now, we have quite a lot of Athenian courtroom speeches have survived. We have quite a lot of them, and none of them have a provision for three speeches like this. None of them at all. There's also a point uh, in the middle of of the first of the speeches Plato gives Socrates, where he actually quizzes in a sort of a mini dialogue, (laughs) a mini platonic dialogue, he quizzes one of his prosecutors about whether or not he really is an atheist. That never happened in an Athenian court. All right. So we really have pretty good grounds for saying that that Plato's apology is, is, is fictional. There's an extraordinary story in it at one point where, um, Socrates says that a friend of his called Chirophone, somebody of his age, but one of his disciples went to the Oracle at Delphi to ask the question, is there anybody wiser than Socrates? And the oracle at Delphi said no. Now, as Socrates tells the story in Plato's Apology, it was that that triggered his mission. It was that that triggered him to go around and start quizzing people because he thought, what's the oracle mean? How can I possibly be the wisest? I know nothing. So he went around quizzing people, found out that they knew nothing. And then as you said earlier, decided that, yeah, maybe the oracle's right, maybe I am the wisest, because at least I know that I know nothing, right? right? right. Um, now he says, Plato has Socrates say that, that it was the Delphic oracle that triggered his mission, but no, Socrates was only ever famous in Athens as somebody who went around quizzing people. So there'd been no reason for Chirophone to go and ask the oracle if there was anybody wiser than Socrates, because until then Socrates wasn't known to be wise. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so the the Delphic Oracle story is almost certainly a fiction.
0: Yeah, that's. And Plato
1: tells it, and and Xenophon tells his own version of it as well. But I'm I'm 90% sure it's 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 a, a made up story.
0: And this is this is one of my strong interests in ancient in studying ancient Greek history. It's just there's so many things that are in a gray area between sort of actually very, you know history that we can feel confident about um, that historians can feel confident about and just these kind of legendary stories about these different figures um, yeah. and you know it's uh it's uh, we we've looked at the mythological figures like achilles and we'll be looking at heracles and others but you know there's there's a lot of myth around even the historical figures of ancient greece as well um
1: and well it's it's just i mean it's you know there there're decades of Greek history where we have no sources and we're we're relying on you know perhaps a few inscriptions or a couple of anecdotes to try to reconstruct Greek history but what fun though Patrick it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle you know (laughs) I mean we can try to fill in the gaps in our own you know making intelligent guesses informed guesses from from our background reading and so on and so forth it's just it's hugely
0: it's funny too because when I first started reading about Alexander I was finding myself so disappointed when I would start looking at the more scholarly, you know, works and, and realizing, well, maybe he's not just like the way he was portrayed in this movie or this show or, or this. Ma-
1: or Mary Reno's book or something. Yeah.
0: Right. But as as time has gone on, I've actually found it much more interesting to kind of accept, you know, that certain things probably didn't happen and trying to, you know, the the ambiguity of some of this stuff has become um. Actually, I, you know, I I look for that in a lot of these situations and I'm, and I sort of question, I enjoy questioning what the, the narratives are and some of the things that are widely accepted as, as true, uh, you know, with ancient Greece and um, because sometimes we're just relying on one source that mentioned this, that this thing happened and it's kind of questionable and, you know.
1: Yeah, well, Alex, Alexander is a good example because, you know, for all his huge, massive fame, um, the earliest historical account we have of the expedition is 200 years after his death, right? Diodorus of Sicily. right, um, right. And, um, you know, and, and, and the the accounts that are considered more reliable, like Arian's history of the exhibition, was 200 years later than that. So he was, you know, okay, let's take Diodorus. He was writing 200 years after Alexander. So it'd be like, it would like, you know, me writing about something that happened in 1800 or something.
0: Yeah, no, you know I, I, mean? I I totally agree. And I, I used to think you could read a biography about Alexander and feel like, and a lot of people have had this feeling that you can really relate to him and you you can know him on some personal level. But I've come to the conclusion that I have, I really have no idea. I mean there are certainly some things you could assume like he probably was very ambitious and did want to achieve a certain level of glory and all these things. You'd om- almost by definition, he would have to have been something like that, but yeah. I can't, I can't relate to him. I, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of different possibilities. I can't definitively say anything about what he was yeah. like as a human being. Um
1: there you are. You see, you're turning into a scholarly skeptic like me. <laughs> uh,
0: so, I, yeah. So, well, so anyways, I wanted to give you a chance before we wrapped up to, to say anything that you wanted about uh, your latest book. Um, you mentioned it earlier. Creators, Conquerors and Citizens, a History of Ancient Greece um, came out in 2018. Uh, it looks like you cover a lot of ground in that book. So is there anything you yeah. want to add about about that book?
1: No, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a general history of Greece. Um, I'm very skimpy on the Mycenaean period. So I start really with the archaic period of Greek history. Mm-hmm. And I cover all the classical period and I cover all the Hellenistic period within the compass of whatever it is, 450 pages or something. So, you know, not a huge amount of detail. Um, the 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 recurrent theme is the one I mentioned earlier, this... this tension between the fact that they the greeks knew they were culturally related but nevertheless constantly went to war with with one another and things like that enslaved one another even you know um or oppressed one another in, in certain ways so that's um yeah i'm really pleased with it. <laughs> actually <laughs> I, I look back at it uh you know i refer to it now to check some details and i think it i think it works pretty well and i wouldn't i hope people read it and enjoy it next month i've got two more books coming out oh wow, wow. <laughs> one is a an annotated translation of marcus aurelius's meditations okay. uh, with basic books and uh because i do philosophy as well as history well as you know since we've done socrates as well as the olympics so. um and the other is another history book i've i've written two uh shorter history books dedicated to the hellenistic period the period um which starts with Alexandria and goes up to the death of Cleopatra VII in 30 BC. That was the final Roman conquest of the last of the Greek kingdoms, Greco-Macedonian kingdoms. Okay, wow. uh, and I wrote a book about the uh, early Hellenistic period called Dividing the Spoils, the war for Alexander the Great's empire, what happened immediately after his death and how his successors fought it out until they reached a measure of stability. And then I wrote a book about the end of the Hellenistic period, about the Roman conquest of Greece called Taken at the Flood. Uh, and now I've written a book that fits in between that. Uh, which is coming out next month with uh, the University of Chicago Press called um, The Making of a King, Antigonus Gonatas of Macedon and the Greeks. And going back to something you were saying a few few minutes ago, or we were agreeing on a few minutes ago, this was astonishingly difficult because we really have very little evidence for the third century. There is no ancient narrative history left of the period. We're reliant on scraps here and there, very heavily reliant on, on inscriptions. Um there are gaps, there are there are you know stretches of five or eight years where we simply don't know what's what's going on, or sometimes we just hear about a battle, you know, Antigonus defeated Ptolemy at the Battle of Andros, and that's all we know. We don't know. You know anything more about it so it was a real challenge to write but it was great fun as i say in the same sort of jigsaw puzzle-ish way and uh yeah that one's coming out next month as well
0: well i'm looking forward to to reading some of these um uh hopefully one day all of these um and and like i said uh earlier it's quite an extensive resume um many books articles translations and you can it looks like you can find a, a listing of all of your work on your website, uh, robinwaterfield.com. So I'll certainly that's correct. A link. I'll post a link um, to to that on our website as well at Ancient Heroes. And uh, thanks again for talking to me, Robin. This has been great. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to do this sometime again in the future. There's a lot that would of be good. topics that we could talk about. Yeah. Uh, and I will follow up with you on coming to Greece. I I can't wait to to come over there myself. So. Thanks again and and have a nice evening.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Patrick. Of course.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.